Welcome to the CDA's annual conference podcast series. I'm Dr. Carrie Purdy. I'm a dermatologist in Halifax, Nova Scotia. We're here on the floor of the Canadian Dermatology Association's 2019 annual conference in Calgary, Alberta. The series is really meant to give us a chance to chat a little bit more in depth with some of our interesting guests and guest speakers. And today I'm speaking with Dr. George Haruza, who is the president of the American Academy of Dermatology. He's also an adjunct professor of dermatology and otolaryngology at St. Louis University. So he's a Mohs surgeon by training, but I think for today we're going to be talking about our um, comparable roles as the presidents of these uh, associations, both in North America. So I'm very excited to be hearing about what is happening with our American counterparts as I'm about to come into the role of president. So thank you so much, Dr. Hruza, for joining me today. Well, thank you for having me. I'm uh, looking forward to it. I especially enjoyed the change in weather. I came from Washington, D.C. <laughs> advocating. It was 95 degrees, and in a suit, walking across the Capitol was pretty challenging. I came here, and it was beautiful and much uh, more pleasant. Other than last night when we had the pouring rain, which seemingly mm-hmm. shut down half of the city. So uh, I'm thinking about when you gave your uh, welcome address when you first started, and it sounds like you guys are having very similar challenges south of the border as we are having here north of the border in terms of dermatology and where we fit in medicine and perspectives and patients' interpretations of what we do. So what do you consider to be the biggest challenge or problem facing dermatology now, this year, today? Well, for us, certainly, and I have to speaking with uh, with you a little bit about it, uh, it's clearly scope of practice is a huge issue in the in the U.S. and I believe in Canada as well. Absolutely. Uh, the the big part for us is the uh, non physician providers, who um, some of them seem to think that they actually are dermatologists and mm-hmm. and even advertise themselves as such, and so we have to state by state we have to keep fighting it. I have patients come to me with problems that have occurred. I recently had a patient that um, had a tattoo treated with the wrong laser, with the wrong settings on her chest, which she came into me with, uh, with, uh, with some keloidal scarring from oh. treatment of her tattoo. Right. And the problem was that uh, not only, of course, did she have a scarring, this was done by a nurse mm-hmm. that had no supervision, that just had a laser in her, in her office, and the problem was that there was no no recourse. Absolutely, because yeah. she went to the board of healing arts, and they said, "Well, um, we can't do anything about this because you're not a, she's not a physician, so we we can't read it. They don't regulate that." She couldn't sue them, mm-hmm. sue the person because there was no insurance and there was no money there to be had, so no lawyer would take the case. So she was really stuck, and uh, we see that all the time, and so. Our effort is to make sure that patients get good, um, safe care. So right. we're really trying to protect the public in that we want to, we, we're really pushing to make sure that patients know who is treating them because there's nothing wrong with having a nurse practitioner or physician assistant treating the patient as long as that they know who it is, that that's what they are, that's what their training is, and that they work with a physician part of the Durham care team. Right. And I think that's a, a consideration when you think about what the supervision or what the oversight is, and that that's a little bit what doesn't seem to be regulated right now. And we're having similar challenges in Canada. Um, and I think if we were to go out on the floor here and ask everybody, I think everyone would probably give you a dozen cases of similar things that have happened. And it's very unfortunate. Um, 
Do you think, so maybe we'll talk a little bit before we talk about some of the, the challenges related to that, maybe we'll talk about some of the successes. And so I, I understand in the U.S. you have had some states that have had some successes in terms of getting patients to know who they're seeing and what their credentials are. Exactly. So we've had in more than 20 states now, we've had truth in advertising legislation, which basically states that if you're going to call yourself a dermatologist, yeah. You got to say it's you got to state what your board certification is. And so it's it's saying if you say a board certified you got to say what the board is and it's got to be a formal ABMS AOA which would be equivalent to the Royal College of Physicians, Physicians and, and Surgeons. Surgeons in Canada. <laughs> yes. And uh, so that you because we have a problem with with physicians saying for example an anesthesiologist who decides they want to do cosmetic dermatology they will call themselves board certified physician specializing in dermatology. Right. And so we want to get away from that and we've had success in over 20 states with that. And we're pushing, of course, trying to get that in all 50 states because the state by state issue, as I think in Canada, it would be a province by province issue. And I would say the same, yeah. So in, in Alberta, I know Dr. Sapiasco has gone um, uh, to the local colleges and has had some success also in terms of getting the proper terminology used so, pa so that patients know who they're seeing. And we're working with the CDA as well to do a campaign about misrepresentation such that we're able to target different colleges. Do you think that it's easier to, to do this on a state-by-state -state basis rather than nationally? It, it, I, we've, we've found it a little bit more successful to go province by province in Canada. Right. What and do in, you think? Well, in the U.S., th that's the only way because, okay. because practice of medicine is a state issue. So the federal government does not want to get in, does not has no interest in getting involved. Okay. We have made some efforts to try to get truth in advertising because we do have the Federal Trade Commission that regulates advertising, and so false advertising would fall in their purview. But so far, we've not had federal success. And in in the U.S. Congress, getting something passed, especially nowadays. <laughs> is nearly impossible because it's right. so polarized. Yes. So state by state works pretty well. As I would say, you need to go province by province. Um, I think it's a um, uh, it 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 works well. The the thing you mentioned that that just uh, you mentioned working with the colleges, which I assume is sort of for us would be like the state medical association. Absolutely, in similar ways. Similar. But yeah, that's who would designate the licenses and who would designate whether or not you're able to indicate that you have a specialized practice. So that's actually much more rigorous. Our medical yes. societies are just uh, more advocacy-based, right. but they don't have any regulatory um, uh, regulatory effect. But it's really important to work together because as dermatologists, you know, we are about 1.5% of physicians. So if we try to push legislation just as dermatologists, Usually we won't be successful, but when we work with the state, yes, then that makes a difference, and that's why my big push has been to try to make sure that our dermatologists, um, dermatologists become members of the state medical society and be engaged because we really need to to be able to have an impact. That's right. Impact. Now um, you mentioned working together, and I think that we are a very small percentage of uh, physicians. And have you in the U.S. had any success working with other physician groups? Um, you know, for example, plastic surgery or otolaryngology or because I know that's one of the things that gave us a success in Alberta. It was saying, well, would you accept somebody saying I'm a, you know, family physician cardiologist, for example, or I'm a family physician plastic surgeon? And it got those groups on board to support the initiative to say, yeah, let's ensure that patients know who they're seeing. Have you had any 
Similar well, experiences? To some extent, even though it, it does get difficult. So it, at the when once you start going into different specialties, then of course you go to the medical society where they say, well, that's a turf battle. Right. And so then we end up having a difficulty. And especially when you start having, you know, let's say pitting family practice doctors against other specialists, it becomes a challenge because they tend to be large in numbers. Right. So we have not that success in that area. However, more in the scope issue, which more has to do with physicians versus non-physician providers. Right. Okay. We've had a lot more success where we've gotten engaged with the AMA. Okay. And actually bringing resolutions to the AMA and have the AMA supporting our efforts. Because the, the, the issue of the, the non-physician providers is not uh, only in dermatology, even though we are probably affected more than others, but mm -hmm. we do have other areas like anesthesiologists with nurse anesthetists, right. ophthalmologists with optometrists, and um, or uh, orthopedists with chiropractors. Right. So there's a number of other areas. So we actually do have often alliances with other specialties, specialties, and then we can work with the medical societies in the States, and then the AMA can bring sort of the, I call it the big muscle to kind of help help us push things through. Okay, yeah, that's fair. And I think there are obviously some differences in terms of the way that things would go forward in Canada versus the U.S. Um, one of the things that we often think about as well is that we just sheer, uh, we don't have enough um, dermatologists in Canada and we don't have enough residency training positions and medical students don't learn enough dermatology when they're in medical school. Uh, are those similar challenges that you're facing in the U.S.? Absolutely. I think the, the, the issue in... I believe in Canada, part of the problem has to do with the fact that the the state, the, I mean, the the province will only allow a certain number of licenses. Yes. So in the U.S., we don't have a restriction on that. The problem, though, is that there's been a a huge restriction on number of residency slots that are funded because okay. most residency slots are funded by the by the Medicare by federal government. Right. And that's been frozen for at least the last fifteen years. Wow. So we've they've expanded tremendously the um, uh, medical school slots okay. because of physician shortage. Yet they haven't increased the number of residency slots. So there's actually a squeeze. A lot of a lot of medical students don't even match. Oh, and now we wow. have a lot of U.S.-based yeah. medical students do not find a, a spot. Not just in dermatology and other specialties too. So it's it's becoming a bigger and bigger problem. So in dermatology we have a real shortage. We burden of skin disease report showed that only. Only about a third of skin disease is treated by dermatologists in the wow. U.S. So we have a real shortage. The feeling is that the calculations that we need at least 20,000 plus dermatologists, and we have maybe somewhere in the range of, I think, about 13,000, somewhere in that range in the U.S. Okay. And so we have a significant shortage. So that's why there is a real need to fill that gap. And so we have the uh, non-physician providers, like nurse practitioners and physician assistants, they actually do serve a very important role to provide those dermatology services. So we feel they're a really important part of our, our the, the team because we can provide all that care. And I guess that's a similar problem that we would have here. And many times we are working with our family physician colleagues to try to provide, to, to bolster their knowledge in dermatology such that they're able to provide the skin care to patients. Um, you mentioned, you know, the important role, which I agree with. How do you see is the best set up to be able to use, say, a nurse practitioner or other uh, non-physicians 
what do you think is the best model of that? Because right. you mentioned as well in the um, in your opening address that some in some places a little bit like the Wild West, and so people are out here and they're doing that, and you know you get an oil change and your Botox. Uh, what do you think is the best, most effective, safest setup? Well, so so our concept is uh, the derm care team. Okay. With the with the um, the dermatologist at the sort of at the leader of the team. And then the team will have physician assistants, nurse practitioners, nurses, medical assistants, and, and other other uh, healthcare pr uh, providers. The key part of it is that the physician is on site directly supervising all the other members of the team. Right. So we are not fans of um, where you have a, a physician in one town, and then they have five in Southern Illinois. We have a um, dermatologist that has, I believe, seven clinics where each clinic has a nurse practitioner or two, and, um, and he's just one physician and supervising those seven clinics, which, of course, he's never shows that, never's at those clinics. Clearly. And that's, uh, and we've seen a lot of problems from that. Okay. So, you know, nurse practitioners and physician assistants are really, they're, they're well trained for what they do and what they know, but the training is so different between physicians and mid-level providers. Um, they, um, physicians, we learn how to think about differential diagnosis, right. how to troubleshoot. Think, of, troubleshoot, think outside the box, think about all the different possibilities and don't stick to some prescribed uh, protocol. Right. Nurse practitioners come from a background of nursing. Nursing is where you have an order saying this is what you should do, and then you execute and do a nice job doing it. And even though they have additional training, they still don't have that truly thinking, thinking sort of fully independently. They right. have to rely on that on that protocol which tells them this is what we do in the setting. And the problem is whenever something deviates and each patient is unique, and you got to think of that, unique patients mean that they don't all fit into that box. And so having that physician available when, when they encounter something that doesn't quite seem right so that they can touch base with them, I think is really important. And that means they've got to be in dermatology. That means that they've got to be able to see them. Now, maybe now with teledermatology, we can do a little bit of, more offside where they can show the, you know, do a right. little bit quick consult um, with yeah. that. But in general, I think being right there is, 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 is the best Direct way. oversight is best. your, yeah. yes. So, yeah, I often think, you know, when we're teaching our medical students or our residents, we're providing that direct oversight and you'd never really let them go out and do their own thing necessarily without um, the ability to have that safety net. But I also think it really does come down to the way that we're trained to think through problems. And so whether it be more you know, thinking about all the different aspects and being able to troubleshoot your way through and or just following more of an algorithmic approach. And so I think that does impact the way that you look at each um, individual problem. And, and so I, I totally agree with that. In Canada, one of the main issues that we have with non-dermatologists providing dermatologic care is that many of them are more wanting to provide aesthetic or cosmetic um, services rather than it being servicing a need of skin care or skin health for patients in underserviced communities. Is that a similar type of situation that you have in the U.S., or is it more just, you know, medical dermatology, non-medical dermatology? Well, absolutely. Certainly, especially when you talk about 
other physician specialists, they usually don't go into dermatology for taking care of medical dermatology patients. They really do do it mainly to become a cosmetic, um, to do cosmetic dermatology. And so, but to give them the, that imprimatur, if they, if again, emergency room doctor says, I'm an emergency room doctor, I've practiced for 15 years, and now I'm going to take care of your skin and do wonderful cosmetic things and improve your skin. Well, that's not going to sell very well. Not very so well. So they tend to try to hide it a little bit, camouflage it, saying, you know, it's a you know physician that is a board certified physician that uh, you know specializing in taking care of your skin and we have this wonderful office and we take care of you and nowhere does it mention that what their board underlying tra- is the training is and that's where our truth in advertising uh, legislation push comes because we really think that patients should know um, you know who their provider is, and I think that's the same the same challenge. We recognize as a small group that we're not able to provide all of the skin care, all of the skin needs. It really comes down to just ensuring that the patient knows who they're seeing and what their scope of practice and what their qualifications are. Um, at least in my mind. Uh, so, in terms of just directions of the AAD, where what is your general plan over the next, you know, for, for your presidency? What are your big goals, or where, where where are you going with the AAD? Well, actually, my uh, my make big push is, and I you know when I gave my uh, presidential speech, it actually had to do with the joy of dermatology. Okay, a positive spin. A positive spin on the whole thing, because we we also have issue of uh, physician burnout, yes. physician wellness. Yeah, and that's significant in the U.S. I think the big part of that has to do with electronic health records, burdensome regulation, and ba- uh, and the feeling of loss of autonomy. Mm-hmm. And I still love going to work. I've been practicing for thirty years, and I still love going to work, taking care of my patients, seeing the patients, making a difference for them. I mean, my wife knows that when I come home. Um, if I had a good day, I mean, I usually have a good day, but I kind of have like extra pep in my step. It usually means that I saw a patient that like I really made a felt I made a difference, you know, someone with a, a big difficult skin cancer. Yeah. And then I did some new repair that I had just seen at the meeting. I was just at the Mo's meeting and and I remember I once I did like this shark flap and it's the first time I've done it and it was cool. it was really cool and I come home and all excited and the patient is happy because of course they're very happy because they were scared about how they're gonna lose half their nose and what's how deformed they're going to be, and then you put it in there, and it, gee, wow, that looks really cool. So they really thank you, and it just makes a difference. And so I still have those days 30 years later. The problem is that all this stuff that's getting on top of and getting into the doctor-patient relationship is where I think the academy can help through our mm-hmm. efforts to reduce some of those um, some of those uh, burdens yes. that are that are pushing from all sides. And also give give the members tools to help them deal with those issues. So the EHR, for example, a lot of physicians are not able to navigate it well because they need to. You actually need to learn how to change your workflow. Yes. And we provide a lot of and developing a lot of tools to help them actually to understand what they need to do in order to continue to be able to practice good medicine while still dealing with all this nonsense. And then right. of course we try to do all kinds of stuff, developing measures so that they can get, also get paid. Right. Because we have other, in the U.S., we you don't have that in Canada, but we have all this, all this little reporting, checking boxes, all kinds of nonsense we deal with. Yes. So the Academy's role is to try to remove a lot of that. Okay. The headache. 
yes. from, uh, from people have to deal with. And we also have parts on things to help people understand work-life balance and all that. We also have the, a lot of that too. So, so to me, that's my big thing. Okay. So br bringing back the joy and, you know, whenever you look at the burnout rates, because I think it's a huge issue right now in medicine and, and we always fall on the lower end. So, you know, less burnout in dermatology, uh, more, more job satisfaction. But I have felt it over the last nine years of practice that that is getting more and more and more. So even if we might be at the, the lower end, I still feel it and I feel it in my colleagues and I feel it in the, the residents even. And so I think that these are really great initiatives that we take to try to group together to help make it more right. effective and, yeah. and, and share these awesome cases, which and, is why these meetings are great. Oh yeah, absolutely. I mean, that's that. So, you know, it, it turns out that burnout actually in dermatology is it's lower than the average. However, it is the fastest growing rate Interesting. of burnout. And I think at least in the US, it's probably because of EHRs and all this feeling of loss of autonomy, right. which, is, uh, which is a big issue. And I, I actually agree with you, a big part of this is a little bit like I mentioned the shark flap. Well, it's yes. the, that people have to get in their mind back to the basics. It's the education piece that you want to be a lifelong learner. Right. Because by doing that, you feel an empowered to do a better job with your patient. Patients appreciate it. You get that feedback and it's it's something that's that's great. And and I met with some of the residents yesterday at the um at the at the reception. Yes. And you know, it's it's just great to see the enthusiasm they have and they looking forward, you know, sort of, I call it idealistic, but <laughs> I think we can maintain that right. if you focus on what really matters yes, and not get caught up in all those distractions. Just make those distractions and try to delegate, try to make them, you know, minimize yes. that part and yeah. focus on why you did this. Why did you get in dermatology? Think about every day. Why am I here? Well, because you're here to the difference that you want to take care of those patients. Right. It's not about where you're going to get reimburse a little bit more for this, a little bit less for that. It's it's what is it that you want to do for your patient? And that's what you've got to focus on every day. Totally agree. Totally agree. And I love when I come back from a conference and I'm seeing a patient that has something interesting and I'll say to them, I was just at a meeting and I saw this, you know, interesting new thing. And they find it, I think they find it very positive. They, they you know, their doctor is going to learn new things. They're excited about things. And, and then that makes me even more excited. So um, on that positive note, I want to thank you so, so much for joining me on this podcast. Um, I think it's been a great conversation. And I look forward to some collaborations between the CDA and the AAD over the next year and number of years. Absolutely. Thank you very much. Really enjoyed it. Dr. George Ruza is a president of the American Academy of Dermatology. He's a Mohs surgeon by training, and he's an adjunct professor of dermatology at St. Louis University. He's here at the Canadian Dermatology Annual Conference. That's it for this episode. Make sure you hit subscribe so you're notified when new episodes are released. On the floor of the 2019 CDA Annual Conference in Calgary, I'm Dr. Carrie Purdy. Thanks so much for listening.